If you're like me, you care about getting the most from your workouts, which means wearing the finest performance gear. You know, fabric that dries quickly and has superior moisture wicking properties. Fabric so soft and comfortable, you could, well, curl up and sleep in it. Introducing Sheeks, spelled S-H-E-E-X, the world's first performance bedding line. Sheeks began when two former elite athletes and coaches had an aha moment, combining everything we love about quality performance fabric with everything we love about comfortable, irresistible bedding. Unlike traditional sheets that trap heat, sheiks are breathable, so you aren't constantly waking up to throw off covers or add a blanket. So you sleep deeper, longer, and better. And sheiks bedding looks as good as it feels. Colors and styles that can match any decor at a price that will pleasantly surprise you. And right now, you can try sheiks for 30 nights risk-free. Just go to sleepcoolnow.com. Use promo code 1212 and get $40 off any sheet set. That's sleepcoolnow.com promo code 1212. Sleepcoolnow.com, 1212. This is our number one of the World According to Zig podcast for this September 17, 2017. My name is John Ziegler. I'm the host of the show where you can still get the truth about news, politics, media, sports, and culture from a true conservative perspective in this world turned upside down, as is always the case, a ton to get to this week. In hour number two, we have another tremendous guest, a guy by the name of Bill Browder, who you may know from his testimony to the Senate Judiciary Committee on the entire Trump Russia controversy. He's the author of a book, Red Notice, a true story of high finance murder and one man's fight for justice. You will not want to miss that interview if you care at all about the issue of Russia, because it's just a fascinating story that he tells and one that's very, very relevant to uh, what is going on with regard to that investigation. That's in hour number two. Uh, Speaking of uh, Trump, uh, the big story this week, I guess, from a political standpoint, as is almost always the case now, deals with Donald Trump and his transformation, as I've been predicting for two years, into Arnold Schwarzenegger II. Uh, I wrote a uh, column for Mediate this week, which you can find at freespeechbroadcasting.com, going into probably greater detail on the comparison between Trump and Schwarzenegger than I have ever done before, although I have mentioned this many, many times, going way back to the the old syndicated, nationally syndicated Sunday night show that I used to do with uh, Leah Brandon. And, and this this really was one of the many things that frustrated me most about Leah Brandon's uh, jumping on the, the Trump train as, as uh, enthusiastically as she did, because she lived with me through the entire Arnold Schwarzenegger fiasco here in California, one which I predicted way before anyone else did, correctly so. Uh, It was clear as day that that was coming, and it's just as obvious, and has always been just as obvious, that Trump, should he have ever become president, was going to run into the exact same set of circumstances. I mean, it's important to remember, these are very similar people. These are narcissists with massive egos who live in a celebrity bubble, who love positive attention, who have very liberal members of their immediate family. Schwarzenegger obviously was married to Maria Shriver, who not only was a Kennedy, but also a media member. Ivanka 
and uh, Jared are, are basically the effectively Maria uh, in uh, in Trump's world. And you, you got a situation where here in California, what Arnold Schwarzenegger did was he ma- came into office making all these big promises. He's going to blow up all the boxes, he said. He's going to change the way Sacramento works. He doesn't care. He's beholden to no one. Remember this? <laughs> Sound familiar? Sound familiar to people not, from, not living in California at that time? Yeah, it was exactly like Trump. So big promises, you know, a unique set of circumstances surrounding that election, which allowed him to win with a with far less than a majority of the vote, just like Trump. And what happened with Schwarzenegger? Well, you know, he came in talking a big game, but then he realized there was this thing called reality. And that with Democrats controlling both chambers of the legislature, there was no way for him to do what he wanted. So he went to the people and he got his ass handed to him in an elect, a special election where he lost all these propositions. And the day after he lost all these propositions, he completely flipped. He turned into a full-on Democrat and really didn't even pretend about it. And then he basically farted in the general direction of Republicans for the rest of his uh, tenure. And, and that got him reelected, by the way, because Schwarzenegger was not going to be perceived as a failure. If he had remained a Republican, he would have probably lost re-election and he would have been perceived as a complete failure so he's not he was not his ego was not going to allow him to do that and what's interesting to me about the comparison between schwarzenegger and trump and 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 kind of depressing is that i believe schwarzenegger actually had a semblance of principle behind why he was a republican because he could actually articulate it and by the way he hadn't become a republican like 15 minutes before he ran he had always been a Republican. Now, being a Republican in Hollywood and being a Republican in New York City like Trump are very similar. <laughs> but Trump was never even fight- a Republican. He was never fighting that fight. He was never remotely fire tested. So, of course, as soon as he gets any resistance, what's he going to do? He's going to take the path of least resistance. He's going to do what's good for him on that day. What gets him a good headline on that day. And we saw it again this week with apparently a deal that he struck, not with Mitch McConnell and Paul Ryan, the Republicans who actually are in charge of the Senate and the House, respectively, but with Chuck Schumer and Nancy Pelosi. Remember those people that we've been told were evil by Sean Hannity and Rush Limbaugh and Fox News Channel and Matt Drudge for all these years? Evil, evil, evil people. Well, now all of a sudden, most of those that I just referred to are telling us Trump had no choice. He had to make a deal with the devil because those damn Republicans are just so cowardly. Well, what was the deal? Was it a good deal? Well, based upon what we know, it was a crappy deal. The deal was to take the Obama-era executive order called DACA, which protects dreamers, so-called dreamers, the children of illegal immigrants, and take that out of the realm of being an executive order and giving it far more power, making it law. See, an executive order, Trump can get rid of whenever he wants because he's president. By the way, uh, he promised to do that, didn't do it, won't do it, has made it clear he won't do it, gave away all of his bargaining position by making it abundantly clear, even when he was announcing that he was ending it, that he wasn't really going to end it, that it was a six-month 
waiting period. And then if nothing happens at the end of six month, months, he actually tweeted that he would revisit it, not end it, revisit it, which means he ain't going to do anything. So he tells the whole world that he's bluffing. It's clear he doesn't really believe in ending DACA because he's a pro-amnesty New Yorker, always has been. It's just that during the campaign, he realized immigration was the issue that could differentiate him from the other 16 people running for the nomination, that he would be freer to use all sorts of rhetoric to fire up the base and to get great media coverage on Fox News Channel and on talk radio, and that the birther crowd that already loved Trump would be the exact people who would be fired up by this. I mean, that's, that's, that's knowing your demographic. Very good chance, very good chance that people who bought into the birther bullshit are also anti-illegal immigration. <laughs> Doesn't take a genius to figure that one out. So, so Trump realized this and used it to his political advantage, but never really believed in it. And so he's going to make, the deal apparently is, he's going to make the executive order allow it to become law, which means, for all intents and purposes, it's forever. It's permanent. There's never, ever, ever, ever any going back. And in exchange, what's he going to get? Well, he's claiming he's going to get some increased border security, which, (laughs) but not the wall. Even he's acknowledged it ain't going to be the wall because the Democrats have, as I predicted, I said this in a column two weeks ago, I said there is no way Democrats having the leverage that they do when Trump has already given up his leverage and indicated he's bluffing, no way the Democrats are going to give Trump his wall in exchange for this because there's nothing they fear. They don't fear any scenario here. There's no scenario. I played it out. A couple weeks ago, check it out at freespeechbroadcasting.com and in, in a column entitled uh, Trump's DACA debacle, there is no scenario where they lose politically. None. There, it's only a matter of how much they win and when they win. So Trump has no leverage to get anything done on the wall. He effectively acknowledged that by saying <laughs> meekly, the wall will come later. What, what is that? Oh, please. Seriously? Are you seriously trying to tell us that after we've done this deal on DACA, giving up any leverage that you have, that then, what, halfway through your presidency, after you get your butt handed to you in the midterm elections, maybe that will be the moment you get the wall built, Donald. Yeah, that's that's going to happen. <laughs> You get elected promising this big, beautiful wall that Mexico is going to build. And your approval ratings then drop to the mid-30s. Then you're going to wait to give up all your legislative leverage. You're going to give away DACA. And then after you lose Congress, then you're going to get the wall built. Bullshit. Complete bullshit. And I, I, I I, I've lost... Uh, any confidence that the uh, Trump cult is going to be able to figure this out. But even some members of the cult might be going, really? Seriously? I mean, this was his number one promise, was the wall. And as far as getting some peanuts on border security in in return, uh, that's just butt covering. I mean, Democrats don't care. It's not their money. Sure, sure, Donald, go ahead and claim you spent another billion dollars on border security, whatever the hell it is. 
we don't care. You know, and of course, the, the cult will cheer. Way to go, Donald. He's such a great negotiator. He's playing eight-dimensional chess with these people. No, he's not. No, he's not. He's making it up as he goes and not. That's the reality of it. He has no idea what he's doing. And as far as his philosophical beliefs... I'm very capable of changing to anything I want to change to. <laughs> if there was one statement made during the Republican nominating process that's, that should have made any rational person go, hmm, <laughs> hmm. I'm very capable of changing to anything I want to change to. So let's see here. Um... We're going to elect a guy. We've got a lot of decent options. We're going to go with a guy who has never fought any of these fights other than birtherism, never really been a Republican, lived in New York City his whole life, has no philosophical underpinnings, was very pro-choice, for instance, liberal on a number of other issues until literally just before he decided to run doesn't appear to have any strong convictions about anything. Gee, nothing bad could happen once that person gets into the maelstrom that is the presidency and the criticism that one takes then because no one's ever going to change their position under that kind of pressure. And here he was telegraphing it. I'm very capable of changing to anything I want to change to. Now, Ann Coulter, who wrote the book In Trump We Trust this week, was once again, I don't know, I got to hand it to Ann, who I've met a few times and never really liked. I thought she's neurotic as hell. Uh, Smart in some ways, but I I think she's bipolar in my my, uh, uneducated, non-medical opinion. But uh, I digress. No, I got to give her credit for this. Nobody has ever gotten more publicity and more attention more often for pretending that she's going to break up with Donald Trump. I mean, she's done this like three or four times, at least, maybe more, where she goes on the attack on Trump and everyone says, oh, my gosh, Ann Coulter's breaking up with Donald Trump. Well, no. Ann's doing whatever she thinks is in her self-interest from a career and financial standpoint. Now, does she actually believe in things? Yeah, she actually does believe in in some things, and she probably is really honestly pissed off at Trump for this DACA deal. But I don't believe that the Trump cult slash what's, I guess, called now the Republican base is going to be following Ann Coulter. See, that's one of the great misconceptions of how, in this day and age, the media works. See, in this era of massive fragmentation, I have never believed that anybody in any large numbers is blindly following what some commentator tells them they should believe. I just don't think that happens. And and I'm basing this on my own experience. I'm nowhere near as big, never have been, as Ann Coulter. But, you know, I have had fans, have people who follow very closely what I do, who have a great trust in my ability to analyze things and my ability to tell the truth, discern the truth, in my credibility, in my honesty. All that's good. But I know of very few of these people who would be considered Ziegler fans who would ever 
say, oh, Z- Ziegler says do this, I'm going to do this. In other words, Ziegler says you should no longer support Donald Trump, as I guess Ann was saying this week, and then are automatically going to do that. No, that's not how it works. I, don't, I wouldn't want it to be how it works. People like me are just conduits of information and get you to maybe at best think about things in a particular way. But especially in this day and age, where any opinion you want to have can be bolstered or verified or enabled by some website, some news outlet, some Facebook post, nobody changes their mind unless they want to change their mind, unless they're incentivized to change their mind. Very, very few people change their mind based upon pure intellect, logic, and new information. Especially when it means admitting that you were wrong. Admitting, in this case, that you were badly duped by a cult leader. Nobody wants to do that. Even Anne went to great lengths to try to rationalize and rewrite history about her support for Trump this week. There, there, the idea that somehow we had to go with Trump or that we were wary or she was wary of what might happen if we went to, with Trump is flat out false. There were plenty of other good options. I believe that Marco Rubio would have been a fantastic option based upon who was left at the end. And of course, Rubio was torpedoed. Why? Ironically enough, <laughs> because he was seen as being soft on illegal immigration. Well, Trump hasn't done anything that Rubio wouldn't have done. Nothing. In fact, you might argue Rubio would have been tougher because he would have had to have been because no one would have trusted him on the issue. But because the Trump cult trusts Trump implicitly on everything, when they shouldn't, and specifically on the border and immigration issues, he can get away with doing nothing as long as he occasionally you know, holds a rally and claims he's going to build the frickin' wall, which he's never going to do. It's never going to happen. I told you it was never going to happen. Hell, almost everything that Trump even claims to have done never really happens. We learned this week that the transbender, transbender, <laughs> the transbender ban was, was something that very few people heard about. You probably missed the transbender ban. But the transgender ban in the military is something that got a lot of publicity but has never really been implemented. Nobody has been kicked out of the military because they are transgendered. And General Mattis announced this week that at least temporarily, nothing has changed. And I've said numerous times, you know what? I'll bet nothing ever changes on that. That's one of those things that's just going to fade away because Trump, Trump's great genius, if he has one, is understanding the power of the short-term headline, especially with your cult, and realizing that there'll never be a price to pay when weeks or months or years later we realize, oh, yeah, that was just bullshit. (laughs) Because people forget about it or they think it's fake news. Like, for instance, yesterday, and I, I don't know whether this was true or not, There's been conflicting reports, but just yesterday there was a major report that, oh, by the way, we're not really getting out of the Paris climate deal. Again, I don't know what the truth is on this. I've never thought getting out of the Paris climate deal was a was 
anything really significant to begin with for no other reason than it doesn't happen until literally after the 2020 election. This is true, folks. Even if it happens, it's not going to happen until theoretically, in fact, very likely, somebody else has just been elected president. So what does that mean? It means nothing. It means absolutely nothing. Not to mention that the deal itself is mostly symbolic and way overrated and one of those virtue signaling deals. The The reality is that it's, it's classic Trump. Promise to do something that's meaningless but sounds significant. The cult cheers. And then yesterday there's a report, oh, yeah, by the way, we're not really even going to do that. That's the way Trump works. That's the way the con works. Travel ban has never, now granted that's not necessarily his fault, although in a way it is because of the things that he has said actually hurt the ban, the travel ban in court. But the reality is that got a whole bunch of cheers. That was one of the first things he did as president. It's never really been fully implemented at all. Pledges to charity, like to the hurricane victims. That's never happened. From his inaugural fund, it was just released yesterday. Oh, by the way, remember when Trump pledged from his inaugural fund to give a whole chunk of money to charity? That never happened either. This is his M.O. Get the headline, count on everyone forgetting, letting it fade away, and getting no repercussions for it. Now, I've had a lot of people contact me this week and say, John, you must feel so good about the fact that you were right, that Trump is becoming Schwarzenegger, that this was all a big con, that you know we're going to regret his election. Do you, play, do you feel vindicated? No, I, 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 I take no joy at all in any of this. I know people might find that hard to believe. I take no joy for a couple of reasons. Part of it, by the way, is selfish that I take no Joy, But the main reason I take no joy is it's not good for the country. You know, they told me that if Hillary got more votes than Trump, that we would end up with Barack Obama's third term. They told me this when I was suggesting late in the campaign that, you know what, maybe we ought to tank this one and just let Hillary win and ride this out. I got destroyed. Oh, my gosh. Do you realize if Hillary gets more votes than Trump, we're going to get Obama's third term and the country will be destroyed forever. Well, guess what? Hillary did get more votes than Trump. And we are getting Obama's third term. That's what we're getting. We're getting Obama's third term if Antonin Scalia had lived. If Antonin Scalia had not died of a heart attack or whatever the heck he died of, then effectively we have Obama's third term. There's nothing that I can think of that is truly significant and irreversible that Donald Trump has done as of yet that is significantly different than what Barack Obama would have done in his third term. And that's not good for the country. It's an incredibly wasted opportunity, one which we're going to pay for for a very, very long time. And so that makes me sad. Also, I take no joy in this because there's no impact no one is going to really change their mind about Trump. The cult, I believe, is going to almost entirely still stay with him. In fact, he might even theoretically temporarily pick up some 
moderate support from people who are, are you know, no longer concerned that he's going to be this right-wing monster. And, you know, from a personal standpoint, I take no joy because there's no credit involved here. There's never going to be a day of everyone saying, gee, to never Trumpers, we're sorry. We're sorry you guys were right. We were wrong. And here's your your careers and reputations back. That's never going to happen. And I knew that was never going to happen. One of the most ridiculous things that people have charged people like me with is that somehow we were making a a career move to oppose Trump. No. That's not the way it works. That is not, under the best of circumstances, that is never, ever, and was never, ever going to happen because it would require too many people to admit that they were wrong, that they were duped. We're already seeing the narrative on Fox News Channel, led by Sean Hannity, is to blame Republicans for this. Not blame Trump. It's to blame Republicans. That's the way, that's what the narrative is going to be. The best analogy I can come up with here is uh, never Trump conservatives like myself, who, who predicted exactly how this was going to go down, are a lot like the main character in the movie The Big Short. The movie The Big Short is about the uh, housing economic collapse of the late 2000s. And the main character, the guy who, uh, uh, Christian Bale, I guess is his name, as the actor, guy who plays Batman, or did, um, you know, he, he's uh, the guy who's predicting that this is all going to go to crap. That this is, uh, you know, the, the, the numbers are clear, the logic is clear, uh, it, it, it couldn't be more obvious. And then as it starts to happen, he's shocked to find out no one cares. That nothing is actually transpiring the way that it should. And to use that analogy from the collapse to Trump, people should be Trump should be collapsing. People should be calling for his impeachment. We should be, there should be uprisings. No, there's not going to be any of that. There, there is no benefit in 99% of the cases to being the person who tells an unpopular truth that turns out to be right. In this business, it is far more lucrative, far more beneficial to your career to be strategically wrong than it is to be principally correct. And this is not something I've learned from Trump. I've already known this for a long time. So it's not as if, you know, the only difference between people like me and the guy in the big short is I'm not surprised. I'm laughing about it. I'm like, of course, this is the way it's going to be. And this really, I think, is the most important part of the column that I wrote about this issue. Again, you can find it at freespeechbroadcasting.com. Because politically, I think that at worst, at least in the short run, this is a wash for Trump. And it could end up saving his job. And here's what I mean by that. The essence of this issue, and I don't believe that Trump thought a lot about this. Trump, I think, is, you know someone just reacts on in that hour about what's going to feel best for him. I've always mocked this idea that he's playing chess. I've joked that he's actually playing shoots and ladders and not particularly well, but 
whether by accident or maybe who knows, it's possible he, he actually realizes this. What he's doing is he's making this effectively. He's making this bet if he realizes it or not. He's betting that, as he said during the campaign, that the base will stay with him even if he shoots someone on Fifth Avenue. It doesn't matter the level of betrayal. He can crap on them as much as he wants. They will always stay with him. But now he's appealing to a different constituency. And by the way, it's not the Democratic base. It might not even be moderate voters. It's to basically a couple hundred people. It's Democrats in Congress. Democrats in Congress is who he's appealing to. He's showing them, hey, (laughs) you don't want to get rid of me because, you know, I'll let you have your way with me anytime you want. So I'll slut it up big time for you. And it's probably in your best interest. I'm going to be way better for you than, say, Mike Pence would be. So if, if you take over Congress, it's not in your interest to get rid of me. Again, I don't know if he's thinking this through. It's possible that he is. But that's essentially what's happening. And the proof of this is my interview last week in hour number two with Democratic Congressman, my good friend John Yarmouth from Louisville, Kentucky. Check it out. Check out hour two. John, in, in, in only the, the way that an honest guy like he can, describes how he felt like a lot of his Democratic colleagues had a light bulb go off over their head in the last couple of weeks. Like, oh. This could be good for us because now they get whatever they want whenever they want it, essentially, to within some reason, but they get no blame. That's like the old, that's better than an Obama third term for them because Obama third term at least would be, or a Hillary first term, Democrat, the Democratic brand would be sullied by anything that went wrong. Here, they get substantively what they want, but no blame, because Republic, Republicanism will still be associated with Trump. Trump will still be identified as a Republican. The media is never going to let that go. I mean, Trump could join the Democratic Party tomorrow, and they'd still refer to him as a Republican. So we got that. We have that scarlet letter for the rest of our lifetimes. Thank you, guys. Thanks so much for that. We really appreciate it. And that's been one of the many reasons why I've been anti-Trump from the beginning is that I knew that that scarlet letter was going to have major ramifications for years to come. So Democrats are going to realize this is our perfect world. So if those two constituencies hold, the Republican base, meaning that Trump could have the cult not vote for Republicans in the midterm election next year, so therefore Republicans have to stay with him, And Democrats in Congress, which, by the way, you know, you think about it, we're talking about an incredibly small portion of the population. I mean, the Trump cult might be 15 to 20 percent of adults. And of course, Democrats in Congress is a minuscule percentage. So we're talking about an incredibly small portion of the country holding the rest of us hostage. In, in a strange way, I got to almost give it to Trump for for being able to pull this off, even if it was by complete dumb luck and accident. So that's what I currently think is going to happen. Now, Mueller obviously is a huge part of this equation. If Mueller comes up with an earthquake, 
which my gut tells me he won't, but if he comes up with an earthquake, then that can shake things up. But if it's not an earthquake, I think the circumstances politically that I just described hold and that Trump keeps his job and at least plays out his term. Now, you may have seen today Donald Trump in uh, all of his modern presidential glory, as he would refer to it, retweeted a tweet of a video. By the way, the retweet was of a uh, Twitter handle that the address had the word fuck in it. So our president (laughs) retweets a Twitter account. Effectively, then, for all intents and purposes, he's broadcasting on his Twitter feed the account of some anonymous person with the word fuck in his Twitter handle. But the tweet contained a video of Donald Trump hitting a golf ball. The tweet, of course, compliments Trump's swing, which is, I'm sure, why he, part of why he retweeted it. And then the video is made to make it look like the golf ball he hits strikes Hillary Clinton in the back as she's walking into an airplane, and then she collapses. Classy, huh? By the way, the election was almost a year ago. He's president of the United States. And he's retweeting videos of him hitting a golf ball off of a woman, an old woman's back. I, you can't make this up. It's just flat out ridiculous. You, you cannot make this stuff up. It, it, it's, you know. What difference at this point does it make? <laughs> it's a fairly good question. Obviously, it was partially because Hillary's book came out this week. I'm convinced... And the reaction to Trump's retweet today kind of proves it. I'm convinced that hatred of Hillary is really the only thing that held together the Trump campaign and is holding together his presidency. I'm serious. It is like the glue that holds everything together. It's the only answer his cold has to anything. But Hillary! But Hillary! It's an amazing thing from a psychological standpoint. And I also think, and I've always believed this to a certain degree, but now I'm more confident about it, and I think the phenomenon is greater than I ever imagined before. I think that a significant percentage of the Trump cult, and I don't know what that number is, but it's significant, a significant percentage of the Trump cult is really just in this for the entertainment. They're just really in this for the shits and giggles. They find Trump entertaining. And that's why they back him. So as long as he keeps being Trumpy, they will never, ever abandon him. The only thing he can do to lose them is to be really boring for a long period of time and or give in to the evil Republican establishment. That's why the the cult's not going to leave him 
for doing deals with Democrats because he can portray it and Sean Hannity's helping him. He can portray it as I'm sticking it to the establishment by, by, by giving the devil exactly what they want. That's just, it's an amazing, it's an amazing lack of logic, but that's, that's the world we're now living in. As far as Hillary's book. Now, if you know anything about me, you know, um, that I really don't care about being popular. <laughs> in fact, it's probably my greatest uh, talent is finding a way to be unpopular in almost every possible way, even when the odds are against me. But I digress. I do care about the truth. And I'll defend anybody. Hell, if I didn't prove that by uh, going on the Today Show with Dottie Sandusky to defend Jerry Sandusky, I think, I think that was probably pretty much proven forever on that day. I don't care who you are. I stand up for the truth. I loathe Hillary Clinton. My first documentary film was an anti-Hillary film funded by Citizens United, the conservative group in D.C., which is now very closely tied to Donald Trump, that was intended to try to hurt her 2008 campaign, which never happened because she lost the primary to Barack Obama. So I have a, you know, my street cred on being anti-Hillary is as good as anybody's was up until, I guess, last year. When, frankly, I got to tell you, as bad as she is, I think for the country and for the conservative cause in the long run, it would have been better had she won. I realize that blows a lot of conservatives' mind. They can't figure that out because they think she's the most evil thing that ever happened. Anyway, in that context, she wrote a book this week, or came out with a book, What Happened, and there's a lot of whining in it. There's a lot of blaming of other people. Some of that blaming other people is not legitimate, like sexism. Come on. Sexism. Sexism is why you were the nominee to begin with. It's why you were senator from New York. The only reason why you were senator from New York, Hillary, is because you were the wife of a president who got cheated on. It was your consolation prize. Men would not, a man would not have gotten that consolation prize. They would have been laughed at for their wife having cheated on them. So, the, her charge of sexism is, is bullcrap. However, some of her other explanations slash allegations, excuses, what have you, for quote-unquote what happened, are at least somewhat legitimate. And in the column, which you can find at freespeechbroadcasting.com, I go through them. I'm not going to go th- through it all right now. It's, you can read the column if you're interested. But one thing happened this week, which I referenced in the column, that I found fascinating and really telling about the nature of the conservative, quote-unquote, conservative movement in the era of Trump and how hatred of Hillary really is the glue that holds, to the extent that it's held together, that holds all of this together. Because in, the, in Hillary's book, she references George Orwell's iconic 1984 novel, which is one of my favorite books. Forced to read it in high school. One of the very few books I was forced to read during summer reading in high school that I actually fully read and enjoyed. If for some reason you haven't read 1984, it's pretty well known by almost anybody, even people who haven't read it because of popular culture, that the entire point of 1984 is to show why government should not be trusted. That's a, that's a, if, you, if you put it in one phrase, that would probably be it. Everybody knows this. Everybody, right? So 
in the book, she's describing some of the characters in 1984 and what their goals are. And if you're an imbecile or if you hate Hillary so much that you can't see straight, I guess you could read it as somehow her saying that the theme or the lesson or the point of 1984 is the exact opposite of what everybody knows it to be. And I woke up one morning this week, and that was this was all over Twitter from some prominent anti-Trump conservatives whom I respect, at least a little bit. I don't respect too many people very much, but at least I have some modicum of respect for. And everyone's jumping all over this. And I'm like, there's no way. There, there's, there is no way that Hillary Clinton is stupid enough to think that the book 1984 is actually trying to show you that you should trust the power of government. There's no way. And by the way, even if somehow she was that dumb, which I can't comprehend of, her editors would have realized that's a mistake. So I went and read the passage that everyone was freaking out about and mocking Hillary for. And it even trended on Twitter for like 15 minutes. And sure enough, that's not what she wrote. She was describing the goal of the characters in the book, not of the book itself. And I alerted some of peop- some people who, you know, I don't consider them friends, but at least they're, I guess you'd call them colleagues, people I've had contact with for years within the conservative movement. I said, guys, you might want to take a look at this because that's not what she's saying. One of them was Jonah Goldberg, who's well-known and, again, an anti-Trump conservative. And I, and I tweeted at him. I go, Jonah, you got this totally wrong. After a couple of tweets, he actually acknowledged, yeah, I was right in all probability, but that what she wrote was still tone deaf. I'm like, what? It's not, it's only tone deaf if you're a moron and you presume that she and her editors are such incredible imbeciles that they don't know the primary lesson of one of those famous books of our lifetimes. That's just not plausible. So why did this happen? It happened because of this hatred of Hillary that is so intense people lose all semblance of objectivity about her. The truth no longer matters. And also, from a political standpoint, hatred of Hillary is the last issue that pro-Trump and anti-Trump conservatives can still safely agree on. So it's a way for Trump skeptical or anti-Trump conservatives to show the rest of the conservative world, see, I'm still down with the struggle. I still hate Hillary as much as anybody because I'm going to lie about what she wrote in a book about 1984. It, it's just, it's mind-blowing. It's frustrating. And um, it's, not, it's not the truth. And it's not what I thought conservatism was about. <laughs> That's for damn sure. Of course, today, conservatism is just defending whatever the hell Trump is doing at that particular hour, which is just sad and pathetic. But that's where we are. So check out that uh, 
that co- that column at freespeechbroadcasting.com. I wrote one other column this week, as I promised I would do, on the anniversary of 9-11. This was the 16th anniversary this week of 9-11. And I wrote a column about how this really feels like the year, because of a variety of circumstances, one of them being Trump's election and presidency, that 9-11 is kind of fading into the history books. And I related, actually, to the moment that I felt the same way about Ronald Reagan during the Obama presidency while visiting the Reagan Library here in Southern California. So if you're interested, check that out at freespeechbroadcasting.com. I I have one, I guess, uh, substantive and um, a bit of analysis that I think you might be uh, fascinated by with regard to 9-11, at least I find it worthy of comment, that's new this year, which I don't go into in the column. And this partly occurred because my wife and I have been watching a History Channel documentary called The Road to 9-11. Now, I found this fascinating because many of you may know that my first documentary film was a documentary about the censorship of a film that was on ABC called The Path to 9-11, which was censored by the Clintons and became a massive controversy, and I told the real story of what really happened. And so here we are all these years later, and for the road to 9-11 to come out, I found that pretty interesting. Cyrus Narasta, my very good friend who wrote The Path to 9-11, is the one who came up with the name The Path to 9-11, actually had to fight ABC to keep the name The Path to 9-11. So the similarities in the name was was quite uh, telling. Um, and the subject matter was obviously very similar. And, and frankly, uh, Cyrus got vindicated once again. He's been vindicated many, many times before by a lot of the content in this documentary. And the, the controversy, for those who aren't are unaware or have forgotten, was the notion that Bill Clinton passed on numerous opportunities to take out Osama bin Laden during his presidency. And some of the things that were allowed in the History Channel documentary were cut out of Cyrus's movie by ABC because Bob Iger of Disney completely caved to Bill Clinton. Uh, and now, you know, 10 years later, it's not controversial, controversial at all. It's amazing. It's amazing how time tends to do that, especially after your wife loses the election for the presidency and no one really cares what you think anymore. Uh, but But this thing was way more anti-Clinton on bin Laden than Cyrus's movie was, even though ABC has shelved the path of 9-11 forever, never put it out on DVD, never re-aired it as was previously planned, and as I said, censored out some of the key scenes. But here's, here's how my view has changed a little bit. In watching uh, The Road to 9-11, my view of bin Laden himself has dramatically evolved. Like a lot of people, at first I had this kind of um, caricature view of bin Laden. You know, the, the evil guy behind all the, the terrorism, uh, behind al-Qaeda, behind 9-11, and a whole bunch of other attacks that most people don't even, aren't even aware of that occurred before 9-11, which is really the basis for both the path to 9-11 and the road to 9-11. But over time, I now view bin Laden as more of a mascot for al-Qaeda than actually the guy who was running the show. 
it, there were some key scenes and some outtakes in this documentary that make me feel like he was acting. That he really, this really wasn't his thing. And that he really was kind of a fraud in many ways. And I'm sure this will be misinterpreted because I don't intend to equate the two people morally or in any of the ways that you might think or that could be misconstrued. But bin Laden is a character that's a lot like Donald Trump. And here's what I mean by that. Both of their fathers, were their fathers were basically the same people. Rich real estate guys who set up their sons for life, right? Now, both bin Laden and Trump felt abandoned by their fathers. Trump got sent off to military school because he was a bad boy, right? And bin Laden, who was one of 17 sons, right? So he's already, his, his father dies in a plane crash early. So bin Laden's growing up thinking that he's going to be super rich because he's 117th the heir to this Saudi Arabian real estate tycoon. And it turns out that he's not going to be as rich as he thought. And he thinks of himself as something way bigger than he really is. And without getting too bogged down in the details, he he goes to Saudi Arabia after Iraq invades Kuwait. And he actually offers Saudi Arabia to use his tiny little band of ragtag terrorists to get Iraq out of Kuwait. And Saudi Arabia laughs at him. And they eventually kick him out of the country, out of his home country. Now, I equate that circumstance to what happened with Trump with the political media elite, the rich elite of this country. He was never accepted, Trump was. Bin Laden was kicked out of his, you know, his family, if you will, the group that he wanted to be so much a part of, thought that he deserved to be a member of the elite. He was kicked out. Trump was never really accepted because he was considered nouveau riche and gauche and lacking class. So what does bin Laden do? Bin Laden is effectively vowing revenge on those who disrespected him. And it takes its form in this war against the United States. Not because he really had that much anger towards the United States, but because that was what was going to sell among his people. And then he creates this media persona. He uses the media brilliantly, much like Trump, to create this persona about himself, to create this mystique around him. And part of that mystique is, I'm super rich. And just like Trump's mystique based in I'm super rich, it wasn't true. He wasn't that rich. But it, but these are guys in caves in Afghanistan. They think anybody's got any money at all, and he's claiming to be super rich, and he's been Laden, and the name has cachet, and the media is giving it credibility. It must be real. So let's follow this guy. It's the same thing as Trump. His cult all thinks he's super rich. Therefore, he must be super smart because you couldn't be super rich if you weren't super smart, which is not true to begin with. But he's not super rich anyway. It's all a charade. It's a con. 
It's media manipulation. So that's the way in which I see Trump and bin Laden being similar. And then, of course, to finish the thought, Trump's revenge is against the establishment that never embraced him. So bin Laden's war and Trump's war, if you will, based in their own egomania and their own belief that they're bigger than they really are, are actually quite similar. Again, I'm not suggesting that Trump is morally equated with bin Laden. I'm talking about from a personality standpoint and from a narrative perspective, there's a lot of very interesting similarities. And the bottom line is, I don't think that bin Laden was all that relevant. I think he was the mascot. Or maybe he was a combination of a mascot and you know how um, these charities often have like a allegedly super rich person as their face. That's that was him. Because he gave him he gave a lot of money, so they gave him a position and you know respect, and they pretended that he really mattered. He's a figurehead. You can make a comparison, by the way, to Trump and the Republican Party in the same way. <laughs> Frankly, you can make a argument that Trump's a figurehead as president. Our guest in the second hour, Bill Browder, makes that very same argument. It was Khalid Sheikh Mohammed who was really running the show, especially when it came to 9-11. So anyway, for whatever it's worth, and check that out if you get a chance on the History Channel, The Road to 9-11. I had some problems with it in some ways, but by and large it was uh, interesting, and I, and I did learn a few things which I didn't think was possible uh, all these years later. Uh, today is uh, Constitution Day, and the reason I mention this is because there was a really um, startling and frightening new poll out this week by the University of Pennsylvania's Annenberg Policy, Public Policy Center regarding public knowledge, or lack thereof, of the Constitution. Listen to this stuff, folks. More than one in three people, 37%. 37% could not name a single right protected by the First Amendment. The First Amendment, 37%, could not. Only one in four, 26%, can name all three branches of government. In 2011, by the way, that was 38% could name all three branches of government. That's incredible. Now, some of that could be statistical noise, but 12%, a 12-point drop, a 12-point drop in six years is significant. And I don't have a full explanation for that other than the people that are dying were a heck of a lot more educated than the people who are becoming adults. But that would really, that would have to be dramatic. I mean, to make a 12-point difference in six years, that's, that's regardless of the explanation. That is super scary. One in three, 33%, cannot name any branch of government. None. Not even one. A majority, 53%, believe that the Constitution affords undocumented or illegal immigrants no rights. However, everyone in the United States is entitled to due process of law and the right to make their case before the courts. You know, that, that, one, that one was written by a uh, liberal Washington Post reporter, so I'm not sure that that's necessarily all that uh, significant. But to me, the, the, the most important parts of this It's just lack of the basic knowledge of fundamental elements of how our 
constitution and government are supposed to work. Now, I've always believed, and the and the, I've, this is not just a haphazard belief on my part. This is based upon looking at a lot of polling data. I've always believed that basically our country broke down into thirds. A third of the people really get it, really care. They're not necessarily liberal or conservative, but they're they're truly good citizens that understand, you know, at least what is needed to be understood to be a functioning member of society. They get it. A third is somewhere in the middle. They get some things, they get they don't get other things. They're not as educated as they should be, but they can still at least function. And then a third is completely out to lunch. Totally, completely has no business voting, has no business being part of society anyway. They're just dead weight in every possible way. Now, some of this data backs it up, like one in three not being able to name any branch of government. But the really troubling thing is that there's some other indications that those percentages are now starting to waver. That the first group is getting smaller. And that second group is getting much larger. And that that second group is getting dumber (laughs) than they were. And all this has massive ramifications. And yes, I don't believe it's coincidental that we have Donald Trump as our president. I mean, it's not a coincidence that we live in a country where only 26% of adults can name all three branches of government and Donald Trump is our president. I mean, that's not a coincidence. It's idiocracy come to life. That's where we are. Speaking of the Constitution and uh, free speech, I got an email today from Mylai Annapolis who we've had on this show before, the uh, very controversial former uh, Breitbart editor, book author, pro-Trump conservative. He is um, hosting a free speech week in about a week and a half in Berkeley. You may recall that uh, Berkeley hosted Ben Shapiro this week in an event that um, was flat-out hilarious because of all the security, supposedly over a half million dollars, which I cannot believe, but that's what was reported, was spent on security so that Berkeley wouldn't burn down when Ben Shapiro spoke there. I mean, as he wrote on Twitter, what am I, Godzilla or a hurricane? Um, uh, you know, just, you know. It's just flat out ridiculous. And and scary and absurd and and also important because guess what? This is a this is going to turn quickly into a heckler's veto. Because what's going to happen is that that $600,000 security number is going to be used in the future. Oh, we can't we can't host you. Sorry, we don't have the money. See, they'll pretend it's about the money when the money is only happening because they're giving the protesters way, way too much latitude and too much credit, and they're too afraid of them. And so, therefore, they have to overdo it. And I, I believe that this is being done on purpose. These people aren't complete imbeciles. They are purposely overspending so that they can claim in the future, sorry, we can't, we can't host you as a speaker. It's just not financially feasible. Well, anyway, Milo is hosting a free speech week. Steve Bannon apparently has agreed to speak, uh, Ann Coulter. And Milo, um, somewhat out of the blue, asked me whether or not I wanted to speak at this thing. And, you know, I'm sure there are a lot of people who are probably thinking, John, why would you do that? Why would you associate with Milo? Well, the, the thing is a free speech week. 
And that's what it is. It's so therefore inherently you want to have all perspectives represented. And as Milo joked with me in the email, he said, you know, you could be our only liberal. Of course, in Milo's world, if you're not pro-Trump, that means you're you're liberal. <laughs> I actually laughed at that. I gave him some credit for that. That was that was pretty good, Milo. Yeah, I'll be the only liberal. Like I'm liberal. Yeah, right. <laughs> so um, I don't know whether or not this is actually going to happen or not. Uh, I thought it was uh, interesting enough to at least mention the subjects are are um, fa- fairly limited, which is kind of ironic considering it's supposed to be Free Speech Week. <laughs> it's Free Speech Week, but but you you're only allowed to talk about these very specific subjects, um, and there are some logistical issues. But I- I'm leaning towards doing this, assuming that it makes sense. Um, and of course, I wrote a book called The Death of Free Speech back in 2005. Uh, which, of course, no one really read or bought or what have you, but it's still out there, and it was incredibly prescient, and so this is a subject that I feel very passionately about, and so I'll keep you updated on what happens with that. One other uh, story before we leave um, for hour number one. I, I, I don't even feel like I need to mention this, but I feel compelled because so many people asked me about it and because I'm so well-known for being the the Penn State guy in this the guy who defends Joe Paterno and Jerry Sandusky and has the website FramingPaterno.com. Uh, but uh, this weekend, the there was a lot of news surrounding Jerry Sandusky's adopted son having pled guilty to what was described as various acts of child sex abuse. Now, uh, this, of course, is a headline the media could not possibly resist. Son of Jerry Sandusky... Uh, convicted of child sex abuse. Now, for the morons out there who know nothing about the case, this sounds like, oh, my God. Was child sex abuse like the family business? Did it run in the family? Was was this just a, such a horrendous uh, cesspool that this was happening? And I, I guess I get, if all you read is headlines, why you might think that. But there's a lot of people. I mean... As soon as I saw the story, I'm like, oh, great. I'm going to be spending hours responding to morons on Twitter and Facebook and elsewhere via email. Here's the first thing. I, I am not defending Jeff Sandusky. I know Jeff a little bit. I've interviewed him. Uh, you can actually find that on YouTube. He is, a, to this day, a very strong supporter of his adopted dad, Jerry. In fact, he has the words... N- uh, forever Sandusky, or Sandusky forever, I guess. Sandusky forever tattooed on his arm because his former adopted brother, Matt Sandusky, claimed to be a victim, cashed out for millions of dollars, pretended he was going to change his name to Matt Davidson, <laughs> made a big announcement about that, and then realized, wait a minute, screech, hold on, no one cares about Matt Davidson. <laughs> So I can't get headlines with Matt Davidson. I can't get speaking engagements with Matt Davidson. It's harder for me to write a book as Matt Davidson. So I'm going back to Matt Sandusky, even though, wait a minute, hold on. You were changing your name because supposedly you were abused and you're disgraced and you feel like this is horrible. So you're going back to the name that you got as an adopted child of the guy you say abused you. So to mock that, Jeff had... Sandusky forever tattooed on his arm. Now, when these charges came down, they occurred, by the way, while Jerry was in prison. 
So, so it's not like Jerry had anything to do with this. And yes, I guess you could technically call what Jeff was accused of child sex abuse. That's what's in the headline. But that's not really what happened. See, this, this happens all the time in this area of the law. Anything dealing with children or, or rape or what have you, the, those words are so explosive to people. And technically under the law, it's accurate. And the media is not going to, you know, the media is not going to give a damn about nuance. So people read that and they go, oh, my gosh, he's diddling little boys. No, 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 no. Jeff, uh, I believe, and, I, and Jeff is not a smart guy. I think Jeff is probably learning disabled uh, and I don't know what he did as far as what was nefarious, what was stupid, what was somewhere in between, and I'm not defending him, but here the allegation was that he sent very inappropriate and but I guess technically maybe criminal texts of a sexual nature to the late teenage daughters of his long-term girlfriend. That's what he did. So, so it, it, there's no allegation that he was... Uh, that there was any kind of uh, sex act. There's no allegation of any person that you would really consider to be a child, but I guess technically under the law, I guess one was 17, and so they're maybe 16. So, so therefore, you know, they get to use the word child. And again, it sounds like I'm defending. I'm not. I'm just telling you what happened, and it's different than what people would think of it as. So he... He has no choice but to plead guilty. Why? Well, he's got no money. His last name is Sandusky. (laughs) He has no shot at trial. None. And for the record, his girlfriend was standing by him after the arrest. I don't know if she still is now. but So take that for what it's worth. I mean, this is the mother of the the girls who were involved in this and there's an ex-husband who may have facilitated all of it. Again, I'm not defending. I'm just telling you what happened. It's, it's more complicated than the headlines would have you believe. But here's what I find really interesting. Of course, no one in the media will even think about this. So let's pretend that Jerry Sandusky is a serial pedophile, which he's not, but let's pretend that he is. And so Matt Sandusky's telling the truth, right? Matt was abused in the home. Well, if Matt was abused in the home, Jeff for sure would have been abused in the home. Because Matt's not dumb. He's a lying sack of crap, but he's not dumb. Jeff was far more vulnerable as an adopted kid in that family. Trust me, based upon what I know of, of both of them. So if he had been abused, let's pretend that he's... This whole forever Sandusky thing is in a complete delusion and he's not willing to accept it, whatever. Well, now that he's under arrest, under similar charge, you know, so supposedly similar, but not really similar charges. He now has a massive incentive to throw Jerry under the bus, because if he tells prosecutors, oh, my God, I'm so sorry I did this. Uh, I was abused by Jerry Sandusky. Guess what? <laughs> They're They are going to be. Um, they're going to be over the moon. They are going to be thrilled. And, uh, and there's a darn good chance they're going to cut him a better deal. They're good, there's, he's going to get public sympathy. There's all sorts of reasons why he would say this, even if it wasn't true. Well, he didn't say that. Which means for sure that it didn't happen. Now, that doesn't surprise me that it didn't happen, but it's significant that it didn't happen. 
Because if it didn't happen, then that means Matt is obviously lying, which there's a million reasons why I already knew that Matt was lying. Also, what's interesting to me about this is a lot of people in the media and in the public, the implication is that somehow Jeff's conviction is proof of Jerry's guilt. Now, not only is this insane, it's a non sequitur, it's nonsensical, it's totally illogical, but think about what that means. If Jerry was remotely guilty here, after all these years of massive investigation, all these accusers, there wouldn't be a need for anybody to be proving Jerry's guilt. (laughs) You wouldn't be relying on this kind of bullshit. You would have actual evidence instead of, well, my God, look, his adopted son sent bad texts to teenage daughters of his girlfriend. Jerry Masandusky must have did a little boys. What? You wouldn't need to do that. And then finally, the other element that no one wants to mention is, how did they get Jeff to plead guilty? Oh, wait a minute. They had text messages. And they had a story that was from an accuser that was at least somewhat contemporaneous. So they had the story that was backed up by text messages. Huh. That's interesting. Why is there nothing remotely like that in Jerry's case? Why? You've got 30-some accusers. Not one person with a text message. Not one person with a, a telephone call, a surveillance phone call, a, t- a cell phone video, a journal entry, a message to a friend, a joke to a friend, a telling of a family member, a telling of a... Of a, of a teacher, of a coach, of anybody, anything, zero. How is that possible? It's not possible. <laughs> it's not possible because it didn't happen. And yet these are the things that the media, because they're so invested in this fairy tale, never even think about. So anyway, I felt like I needed to at least address that. And um, so I just did. So... <laughs> That's This is the only place you're going to find the truth about that story, I can guarantee it. That'll do it for hour number one. Make sure you listen to hour number two. Great guest, Bill Browder, the author of the book Red Notice, a guy who knows way more about uh, the entire situation involving Russia, Vladimir Putin, and Donald Trump than anybody else because he's literally lived it and is fighting for justice. So make sure uh, you listen to hour number two. In the meantime, uh, I ask only two things of you. Um, Make sure you share this uh, podcast via Twitter, Facebook, social media, or word of mouth, what have you. And number two, uh, if you're one of those people who sleeps and when you sleep you use sheets, make sure you do yourself a really good favor and you listen to this important message. My name is John Ziegler. Our website is freespeechbroadcasting.com. Coffee? Oh, thanks. How did you sleep? Like a baby. I don't want to get out of bed, ever. These sheets are mm, incredibly soft. What did you say they're called again? Performance bedding by Sheiks. <laughs> performance bedding? <laughs> yeah. They're made from super high-tech performance fabric. They're incredibly breathable, so you're not waking up at night throwing covers off and then an hour later throwing them back on. Huh. No wonder I slept so good. Since I started using Sheiks, I sleep like a baby. No more sweaty nights for me. No? Well. <laughs> well, I like them because they're soft. They feel like, mm, silk. Performance fabric, huh? Maybe we should... Oh, I don't know. Try them out again. <laughs> <laughs> Comfort and performance for better sleep. That's Sheiks. 
S-H-E-E-X. Sheiks. Try Sheiks for 30 nights risk-free. Go to sleepcoolnow.com. Use promo code 1212 and get $40 off any sheet set. That's sleepcoolnow.com, promo code 1212. Sleepcoolnow.com, 1212.